Does anybody have any idea what this is that we're listening to? No. Why do you do that? Because I'm educated. All right, well, just keep listening. I'm going to pray over it, and then we'll talk about it in a minute. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this night and for this chance to gather in your name. We thank you for this book, The Screwtape Letters, and for the great gift that it is in terms of practical advice about how to annoy the devil. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together tonight, that you would use it for your kingdom. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so every night that we meet, we're going to have some kind of music to begin with. And part of the reason for that is that Lewis was a great believer in music and the beauty and power of music to communicate truth. Um, He was uh, not always a fan of every kind of music, but there were certain things that he really liked. And this is a piece uh, where Lewis knew the composer and visited him from time to time. Um, It's probably a piece that I would guess no one in here has ever heard. Um, It is a piece that was written um, shortly after Hitler... uh, invaded Poland and England entered into World War II. And it was written by a British composer of that time period. So does anybody want to take a guess on the composer? Oh, that's such a good guess, but no. Um, So who knows who wrote For All the Saints, the music? So it's Rafe Vaughn Williams. Rayfon Williams, and this is a composition that is called Dona Nobis Pacem, Give Us Peace, and it is, it is really a profoundly beautiful uh, piece about war and the cost of war and why the Lord's peace is a better thing than all of that. So I would uh, commend it to you, and I'm going to turn it off right now. just heard that too on the other night one program they were doing about um, Roosevelt and uh, when he and Churchill met I heard that I was thinking that was the music they used well and part of the reason I wanted to play that again is that it's important to remember that this whole book is written against the backdrop of the beginning of World War II and that the book actually comes out during the Blitz, the, the, the manuscript has been sent to the publisher during the Blitz, and that's why there are three manuscripts, because Lewis was worried that it was going to be blown up and he was going to lose the work that he had done in it. So uh, we are going to begin, as we always do, with this scripture from Ephesians 6, which talks about the battle that we are in. So let us say this together. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, 
having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And as we look at that, just the reminder that this is a very proactive verse, that we are instructed in the scriptures to be proactive in spiritual warfare, that we don't just sit around waiting to be attacked. We are proactive in girding ourselves for that battle. So again, why are we studying this book? I think it's important to keep this in front of us all the time because this book is so great that it's easy to kind of go down the rabbit hole. Uh, But I think keeping these things as purposes in mind will help us. First, lessons on understanding the battle. If you don't know who your enemy is and what the terrain of the battlefield is, you are sunk before you even begin. The second thing is lessons on thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview. Thinking Christianly is something that is in dire need in our culture right now, and it is a skill that has largely been lost. So uh, it is up to the church to try to bring that back to develop a Christian worldview. Again, another important thing, the lessons on the psychology of temptation. But in my mind, the more important thing, lessons on habits to cultivate that will deepen our faith in Christ and then enable us to live a boldly Christian life. We've talked about different aspects of those things, and you're going to see that they keep coming up. But I really want us to get in our minds the idea about how important habits are. Because as we talked about in that book, The Common Rule, habits are really the architecture of your life. And we all have habits. We have lots of habits we're probably not even aware of. But (coughs) leaning into thinking about those habits, habits through the lens of spiritual warfare and following Jesus is really important. And one of the great things about a new habit is that they're easy to develop. Uh, any of you that have read any kind of self-help book, uh, sometimes just for fun, this is an aside, if you go in a bookstore, just go to the self-help section. It is just astounding to me. You go in there and the, you know, philosophy is about this big and self-help is a whole wall. And um, it's just a, it's a reminder of how narcissistic our culture is. But one of the things you'll see in a lot of self-help books is that if you want to change a habit, you figure out what it is that you want to do, and then you repeat it each day for about a week, and then normally it starts taking hold. So the good news about that is that's true for spiritual habits, too, that if we are proactive and accountable about them, uh, it's amazing how we can develop new and better habits. So there is this great quotation from that common rule book, only when your habits are constructed to match your worldview do you become someone who doesn't just know about God and neighbor, 
but someone who actually loves God and neighbor. And remember, we've come back again and again, and we will continue coming back to that image at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most important teaching. And at the end of that, he gives us the illustration of the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand. And as I've said before, I think that that is a widely misunderstood saying because what we miss is that Jesus says the man who built his house on the sand heard the word. He heard the word the same way the man who built his house on the rock did. But the difference is that the man who built his house on the rock did something about it. The one who built his house on the sand just heard the word but didn't do anything. And that is what Satan would love for us to do. He'd love for us to just come to church all the time, all the time, and be here and here and here and here and here and not ever do anything. So out of letter one, habits to cultivate to annoy the devil, um, I'm going to keep bringing these each week just quickly because I think it helps to frame uh, where Lewis is going in this book. Connecting, thinking, and doing. This is such a radical thought that what you actually believe should influence what you do. However, we live in a culture that is full of cognitive dissonance about that. The second thing is to focus on universal issues. What is true, what is good, what is beautiful, what is the meaning of life, why has God put you here? Think about those big questions and not just think about the traffic on I-26. Another thing, spend time in beautiful places reading things that make you think and considering their implications. Beauty is something that the church has lost. Um, It was a large part of Christian theology for centuries. And Thomas Aquinas was probably the the high point of that. And then we've, we've started losing that. And one of the really sad things about that is beauty is one of the things that points us to God. And the more that we get that in our head, that beauty, when we begin to appreciate it, points us to God, that can transform our day-to-day life, particularly because we live somewhere that is beautiful. There is beauty all around us. And then the second thing is that reading, reading is dangerous business. Uh, Because when you read things, God can use that to quicken your mind and help you to love him with your mind. And the problem for most of our culture is it seems like what most people seem to be reading is entertainment tonight and um, us and self and you know all of those kinds of things. Uh, that's not what he's talking about. Sitting in a beautiful place and reading People magazine, that's, that's not it. That's not it. If you don't know what to read, come talk to me. I'll give you some suggestions. Um, Speaking of which, number four, um, explore the real sciences. So many of us, particularly if you're like me and you're an English history axis person, not a science math person, we leave science alone. But the wonder of God and the wonder of creation and its magnitude of God's glory is embedded in understanding science. And when we begin to explore science, it creates a sense of wonder for us. 
And so if you, if you haven't done that, I cannot recommend highly enough John Lennox, God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? Terrific book. And then this last one, Love God With Your Mind, Think Christianly and Critically Rather Than Just Going With the Flow. And then from the second letter, Embrace Christianity Not Just As a Theory, but by committing your life to Christ and being transformed. Remember, letter two is where the patients become a Christian, and Screwtape says, oh, don't worry about that. I've had plenty of them that became Christians, but they only thought they became Christians, and after a few weeks, they were right back with us. And most of them are safe in our Father's house below. So the idea is that if you embrace Christianity as more than just another thought scheme, but as something that is transformational and you are really committed, that will annoy the heck out of the devil. The second thing is to deepen your understanding of the church. Along with our whole idea about beauty and how we've lost that, another thing that particularly the Protestant church lost in the Reformation is this understanding of the church Catholic, not Roman Catholic, but the church Catholic the universal church across time and across nations and cultures, the great body of people who have had deep faith in Jesus Christ and have followed him, the martyrs, the saints, all of those brilliant theologians from the thousands of years um, since Christ was born, all of those are that great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about. And yet most of us, feel like we're out there in the battle alone because we forget that the church, all of those saints who are with Jesus are praying for us, that they are worshiping the Lord and that we are connected with them, particularly in a mysterious way during the sacrament of communion. But we are not alone. The third thing is to view others through the lens of Christ. This is one of the most important things and the culture that we have that is so divided and so full of hate. And what you see when you look at Jesus is someone who is profoundly compassionate and loving. He is also not afraid to speak the truth, but he speaks the truth in love. And it's much like what Jeff was saying in the sermon tonight, if you were in there. Part of the problem is that sometimes we have truth without love or holiness without love. And the result of that is judgment and condemnation that turns people away rather than drawing them to Jesus where they can hear. Fourth thing, focus on the ultimate goal and the joy of following Christ, not on the labor. Sometimes it is really hard to follow Jesus. It is really hard. It's not always easy. It is not always happy. But there is joy in the midst of all of that. And the analogy that I've used over and over for this one is the guy who's complaining about chipping blocks all day long, and then as you walk down to the next guy doing the same thing and you ask him what he's doing, he says he's building a cathedral. So your view about that makes all the difference. And then lastly, constantly keep at the front of your mind and heart a sense of wonder at God's grace and mercy and calling a sinner like you to be in relationship with him. And this is so important. We've talked about how the great hymns of the church can be a great aid to this. 
uh, I sent you the link to And Can It Be, which is the great hymn that Charles Wesley wrote about his conversion and how he is just full of wonder that God would save someone like him. Amazing grace who saved a wretch like me. And it's just all of the hymns of that era are full of this. And the problem now, and don't get me wrong, I love a lot of current worship music, but the problem with a lot of it is all about me, 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 me. And it is very difficult sometimes to find this sense of um, that we didn't deserve to be saved. And I'm I'm not going to embarrass anyone by saying who sent me this, but there is a great YouTube video of Clint Eastwood reading praise song lyrics um, that are really bad praise song lyrics. Uh And um, it's quite amusing, but it makes makes the point that some praise songs are really wonderful, but there are others that are just a little dubious. So I'm all about praise songs, but we want ones that uh, are like the ones that we do here that really glorify the Lord and draw us into a place of worship. So from letter three, keep your relationships surrounded with prayer and the Holy Spirit. Do not let Satan get a foothold. Practice Matthew 18 and avoid any root of bitterness. This is such a problem, I think, in our culture today. We are afraid to confront people Um, We just bury animosity, uh, and we let roots of bitterness develop even in the church. And Screwtape loves that, because when you can get that going, you can remember this is the letter about the man and his mother where they're like poking each other all day long, and the devil is just laughing and having a party, and it's selling tickets to watch it because it's so entertaining. So... That's very important. The second thing is cultivate the integration of your spiritual life and your outward behavior. So again, be like the man that built his house on the rock. Fourthly, practice nurturing and practical prayer for others. Believe the best and avoid being overly sensitive. Um, We have all, or at least I, I won't put this on any of you, it's so easy to pray for someone and say, oh Lord, that person needs so much help. <laughs> they have so many things that are wrong with them. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> Lord, you know, though, you, need, you know what you need to do to fix them. And then you might put a bless their heart on the end. But that is not prayer. That is sort of like spiritual gossip or something. But Nurturing and practical prayer is prayer that believes the best where you are praying that the glory of God would be revealed in people and that their hearts would be on fire for their faith. And as I said before, Ephesians, it's a great book to read if you want to look for some ways to pray. Be gracious in all circumstances and speak life, especially with family. Um, It is all too easy um, to fall into what I call the teenager trap. Now, I don't know, maybe our teenagers were unusual and no one else's were like this. But we would very often hear from our friends, oh, your teenager is so lovely. They're so nice. They're so great. And we're like, well, yes, they are. 
But frequently, when they were at home, or maybe not frequently, sometimes when they were at home, they would be rude. And when they would be rude, we would very graciously say, you're being rude. And often the response would be, well, I'm at home with my family. I can be that way here, because this is the place where you can just be, let it all hang out. Well, there's an element of truth in that, but that's not something that you should push very far. So choosing to be gracious and loving is really important, and we are very fortunate that our children really are that way. Um, But we all have our moments, including the parents. Um, And then the sixth one, cultivate spiritual humility and be glad for others' spiritual growth. One of the things that can be a real cancer in your spiritual life is if you start getting puffed up, if you start thinking, ooh, I really know a lot, and the rest of you don't, and therefore I am a better person than you. Um, And I think most of us hopefully wouldn't actually go there with thinking that, but it's really easy to start falling into that. And one of the best ways to do... um, this cultivation of spiritual humility goes right back to that definition we've quoted before of humility that Lewis says, which humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. So the more that you are focused on others and you are grateful to God for the gifts that you see in other people, then you will be much better at being able to cultivate spiritual humility. And then letter four, this is the one from last week on prayer Um, This is such a great letter. Um, The first thing, and that is to pray with serious, focused attention. Remember, Screwtape says, don't let them actually pay attention to what they're praying. Let them sit there and try to develop themselves into some kind of spiritual mood. (laughs) It's kind of like taking your mantra, you know, and putting on your new age music and folding your hands and going, um... And, you know, if you do that enough, you start thinking that you're cultivating inner peace or something. Um, Screwtape loves that. He said, if we could keep them doing that all the time, that would just be wonderful. So, of course, the opposite of that, the way to annoy the devil, is to really be serious, to pay attention, to focus while you are in prayer. And, again, part of that means being connected with Jesus. The second thing is to pray expectantly. It is so easy to fall into the trap of thinking, well, God's not really going to do anything, so I probably better fix it myself. But I know I'm supposed to pray, so I'm going to go through the motions. That is not praying expectantly. The scriptures tell us that God loves us And that God, and we forget this, God is much more interested in our doing his will than we are. So if we actually pray to him about that, he is likely to respond to us. So praying expectantly and not by rote is really important. And the other other aspect of this, of praying expectantly, is sort of like thinking about a small child on Christmas morning. 
the small child on Christmas morning who really wants a fire truck, okay? And the child comes down on Christmas morning, and instead of a fire truck, there's something else. And the something else might be really wonderful, but he's been so set on the fire truck that what does he do? Yes, he throws a temperature. Ah! You know, and, okay. I would say that that is not far off from the way that we respond to God because we know what God needs to do. And we have prayed faithfully for it. And we prayed and we prayed and we put it in our prayer journal. And we helped him out. And we did help him out. And then we got something else. And we are not happy. And so we have a temper tantrum. Well, that is not what praying expectantly means. Praying expectantly means that we trust that God is going to do what is best for us. The third thing is to consider your setting and posture, um, avoiding distractions, embracing beauty, following biblical examples. We talked about the fact that it's all too easy to just get used to praying while you're sitting in a chair, and that when you look in the Bible, there are people that are standing up with their arms in the air, praying for hours. There are people that are flat on the floor. There are people that are kneeling There are all sorts and permutations and combinations of posture for prayer, and those things matter, particularly when you are pleading with God. One of the best ways to humble yourself before God is to humble your body by kneeling or being prostrate on the floor. Focus on Christ and his kingdom rather than only yourself and your feelings. Um, This, again, is sort of the temper tantrum principle. But Jesus is our great example here, where Jesus in the garden, in the extremity of circumstances that are beyond anything any of us can imagine, Jesus prays that God would take that cup away from him, but immediately in the next breath, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that is a prayer that we all need to pray. And then the last part is being confident that God's presence is with you, invisible and yet completely real. And one of my favorite memories about this from some years ago is I was out at Camp St. Christopher on Seabrook Island, and it was a particularly beautiful night. And if you've been out there um, when there's not a full moon, you know that you can see the stars like you're out in the middle of the desert. And it is just spectacularly beautiful. And we were having a retreat of silence out there for about an hour, which is something I would commend to you to do if you've never done. And as I was standing up, I was being buffeted by this wind. And I was trying to pray, and this wind was just all around me. And it was, it was moving me a little bit. And then I just had this realization that that was such a beautiful metaphor for the very real presence of God. I couldn't see that wind at all. The stars are sparkling. The sea is shimmering under the light of the stars. I can't see that wind at all, but it's so powerful, and it's all around me, and it was moving me. So remember that God's presence in prayer is real. All right, so...
Letter five, at last. Letter five uh, is one of the letters about the war. And the war, uh, remember for Lewis, war is a hugely important thing. Lewis was sent to the front lines of World War I in the Battle of the Somme on his 19th birthday. And while he was in the war, he saw all manner of horrible things. His Batman, who was his uh, assistant, his sergeant, um, literally was blown up in front of him, protecting Lewis from a shell. Um, and then Lewis was wounded, and he had shrapnel that he carried in his body the rest of his life. So war is a very important thing for him. So the letter. My dear Wormwood, it is a little bit disappointing to expect a detailed report on your work and to receive instead such a vague rhapsody as your last letter. You say you are delirious with joy because the European humans have started another of their wars. I see very well what has happened to you. You are not delirious. You're only drunk. Reading between the lines in your very unbalanced account of the patient's sleepless night, I can reconstruct your state of mind fairly accurately. For the first time in your career... You have tasted that wine which is the reward of all our labors, the anguish and bewilderment of the human soul, and it has gone to your head. I can hardly blame you. I do not expect old heads on young shoulders. Did the patient respond to some of your terror pictures of the future? Did you work in some good self-pitying glances at the happy past? Some fine thrills in the pit of his stomach were there? You played your violin prettily, did you? Well, well, it's all very natural. But do remember, Wormwood, that duty comes before pleasure. If any present self-indulgence on your part leads to the ultimate loss of the prey, you will be left eternally thirsting for that draft of which you are now so much enjoying your first sip. If, on the other hand, by steady and cool-headed application here and now, you can finally secure his soul, he will then be yours forever. A brimful living chalice of despair and horror and astonishment, which you can raise to your lips as often as you please. So do not allow any temporary excitement to distract you from the real business of undermining faith and preventing the formation of virtues. Oh, look at that. (laughs) Give me, without fail in your next letter, a full account of the patient's reactions to the war so that we can, can consider whether you're likely to do more good by making him an extreme pacifist or an ardent, I'm sorry, extreme patriot, or an ardent pacifist. There are all sorts of possibilities. In the meantime, I must warn you not to hope too much from a war. Of course, a war is entertaining. The immediate fear and suffering of the humans is a legitimate and pleasing refreshment for our myriads of toiling workers. But what permanent good does it do us unless we make use of it for bringing souls to our Father below? When I see the temporal suffering of humans who finally escape us, I feel as if I had been allowed to taste the first course of a rich banquet and then denied the rest. It is worse than not to have tasted it at all. The enemy, true to his barbarous methods of warfare, allows us to see the short misery of his favorites only to tantalize and torment us, to mock the incessant hunger which during this present phase of the great conflict His blockade is admittedly imposing. Let us therefore think rather how to use than how to enjoy this European war, for it has certain tendencies inherent in it which are in themselves by no means in our favor. We may hope for a good deal of cruelty and unchastity, 
But if we are not careful, we shall see thousands turning in this tribulation to the enemy, while tens of thousands who do not go so far as that will nevertheless have their attention diverted from themselves to values and causes which they believe to be higher than the self. I know that the enemy disapproves many of these causes, but that is where he is so unfair. He often makes prizes of humans who have given their lives for a cause he thinks bad, right, lives for causes he thinks bad on the monstrous sophistical ground that the humans thought them good and were following the best they knew. Consider, too, what undesirable deaths occur in wartime. Men are killed in places where they knew they might be killed and to which they go if they are at all of the enemy's party prepared. How much better for us if all humans died in costly nursing homes amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie as we have trained them, promising life to the dying, encouraging the belief that sickness excuses every indulgence, and even if our workers know their job, withholding all suggestion of a priest lest it should betray to the sick man his true condition. And how disastrous for us is the continual remembrance of death which war enforces. One of our best weapons, contented worldliness, is rendered useless. In wartime, not even a human can believe that he is going to live forever. I know that Scabtree and others have seen in wars a great opportunity for attacks on faith, but I think that view was exaggerated. The enemy's human partisans have all been plainly told by him that suffering is an essential part of what he calls redemption, so that a faith which is destroyed by a war or a pestilence cannot really have been worth the trouble of destroying. I am speaking now of diffused suffering over a long period, such as the war will produce. Of course, at the precise moment of terror, bereavement, or physical pain, you may catch your man when his reason is temporarily suspended. But even then, if he applies to enemy headquarters, I have found that the post is nearly always defended. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So there's a lot of stuff in here. So we're going to whiz through all this, but I will commend to you to go back and read this and think about it more. So some habits to annoy the devil from this letter. Uh, This is one that you're going to see showing up over and over again. Bolster faith and cultivate virtue. Remember, he says, the worst thing about the war is that it might be something that enables this to happen, uh, and that you certainly don't want people to turn toward faith. So there's this beautiful passage in Second Peter. For this very reason, make every effort, it sounds a lot like the put on the armor, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, Satan wants you to be ineffective and unfruitful. He doesn't want you to bolster your faith. He doesn't want you to cultivate habits of virtue. He wants you to sit and think, but not ever do anything. So this whole idea of bolstering faith 
And cultivating virtue is something that will be a great way to annoy the devil. And then the second thing, in the face of war or calamity, turn to God. Cry out in prayer to God at the moment of terror, pain, or bereavement. And this may seem self-evident, but it is interesting how often when something really goes wrong, uh, not necessarily a war, but some tragedy happens or we have big problems at work or big problems in our family, the first thing we do, especially if you're a man, is you want to try to fix it. You want to try to fix it. You want to try to understand the problem, and then you want to fix it. And that's not necessarily a bad instinct if it's motivated out of love, but it's not what Scripture tells us to do. What Scripture tells us to do is that when we encounter problems or danger or fears or terror or pain or whatever it might be, that we are to cry out to the Lord. We are to cry out to the Lord in prayer just as if we were a little child calling to our parent. But so often, that is the last thing we do. We try everything else first, and it doesn't work, surprise, surprise. And so then we finally choose to pray. And it is often when we are at the end of our resources that we then choose to cry out to God. And better late than never, but it is uh, a better practice to cultivate on the front end. And the story of Moses and the Israelites fleeing Pharaoh is one of the great examples of this. When you are at your last extremity, when your back is to the Red Sea and the chariots of Pharaoh are coming at you, there's not really time to make a five-step plan to figure out how to fix the situation. You have to cry out to the Lord. And obviously, in that story, the Lord heard their cry and did something amazing. And the problem with us is just like the fire truck illustration, we've decided what God needs to do to fix the situation. If it's a problem at work, that guy that is the one running the department, he just needs to be fired. If God would just take him out, that would solve everything. Well, that may not be what God wants to do. God may have a completely different plan in mind. And part of the reason that we cry out to God is not just to ask him to rescue us and to surround us with his love and comfort, although that's part of it. But one of the most important things when we cry out to God is to ask him to shape our hearts, to ask him to shape our hearts in such a way that we want what his will is, because very often our hearts are far from him. And I love that passage in the Old Testament where it talks about um, Elijah looking for the presence of God and the voice of God not being in the earthquake or the whirlwind or any of those things. And so part of it is looking for where is God in this situation? Where is God in this situation? And you may not know. And when you don't know, that is all the more reason to cry out to God. Screwtape hates this. He says this is one of the big dangers of the war, that when people are confronted with things that are beyond them, they cry out to God. Many of you will remember uh, when September 11th happened, that there were people flocking to churches 
in astounding numbers. I still remember the service we had here at St. Philip's that got pulled together at the last minute without very much publicity, and the church was full. I mean, it was amazing. And, you know, it's hard to believe now, but it really did happen that the Democrats and the Republicans stood on the steps of the Capitol holding hands, singing God Bless America. That's hard to believe these days, but it really happened. And the reason for that is that there's an instinct deep in our hearts when calamity and trouble happen to cry out to God. But because of the the influence of that giant self-help bookshelf uh, that's in our culture right now, we are all too prone not to cry out to God as the first step. So that is something that will annoy the devil. The third thing, focus on values and causes that are bigger than yourself. Screwtape says that one of the worst things that can happen in a war is that suddenly people start focusing on big causes. And he said, even if it's not where they've turned to faith, they may be causes like helping serve in hospitals that are dealing with the wounded, or they may be helping to raise money to support orphans, things that are uh, what you might think of as good works. And what he says is what you don't want is for any of that to happen. You want the patient to just think entirely about themselves and how this tragedy affects me. And I think we are all too prone, and maybe it's just me, maybe you all have all mastered this, but (laughs) I think very often when things go wrong or something unfair happens, we immediately think, that is so unfair. I don't deserve that. This is not the way that it is supposed to be. And then we go on a whole little pity party and we get angry and worked up and all of that, all about ourselves and how this situation is affecting us. And that's exactly what Screwtape says that should be encouraged by Wormwood and the patient's life. Radical self-focus. Because whenever you take your eyes off yourself, you are beginning to step into the truth that God is wired into the human heart and into the universe, that we are to love others and we are to love God and we are to show that in our actions. So, again, this great verse from the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, do not be anxious, just a little aside, do not be anxious, shows up, I think, six times in that one section, It's in the imperative. Um, An imperative is a command. Do not be anxious. Now, we've also heard things like, do not commit adultery. Now, I would suggest that most of us think that committing adultery would be really bad, but being anxious... (laughs) It's not really that bad, is it? But you look at the fact that Jesus says over and over and over again, do not be anxious. And it wasn't that he was like stuck and couldn't think of anything else to talk about. (laughs) He's telling us this is really important. So he says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we have heard that over and over and over again. But we, I think, you know, Bishop Lawrence is fond of that quotation that I always forget who said this. It might have been Augustine. That the journey from the head to the heart is the longest distance in human experience. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. That we have this in our head, but living it out through our heart is not so easy. But what Jesus is saying here is that when you are starting to feel anxious, instead of trying to fix the situation or get what you think you want, the first thing to do is to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to turn to God. And Screwtape is saying to Wormwood, do not let the patient do that. Keep that patient worried about everything that's going on, feeling afraid, all of that, and you will keep him uh, away from God. All right, this, is, this one is a little uh, heavy, but it's important. Understand your mortality and live accordingly. There's a whole, I could do a whole course just on this part, but there is really, really interesting to observe the attitudes toward death and American culture um, starting pretty much at the end of the 19th century and moving through the 20th century. And it's particularly striking if you go back and you read some of the history at St. Philip's, for example, um, and you read vestry minutes or the rector's notes from times in the 18th or 19th century when there was a yellow fever epidemic. And there are 6 to 20 funerals a day going on. And people are surrounded by dying. And it is not an accident that here at St. Philip's, there are graves all around the church. And you may have thought, well, why did they do that? Why didn't they put the graveyard somewhere far away so you didn't have to walk through a graveyard to go worship God? Wouldn't it be better to just have a nice garden there? But that was very deliberate. And the reason that that is the way that churchyards are built with the church in the middle of the cemetery is to remind us that we are mortal, that all flesh is grass. And one of the the problems, there are a lot of good things about wellness and all of that, but one of the problems is that we buy into this myth that we are going to live forever. If we can just eat right and exercise enough and um, wear clothes that make us look younger, we, we're going to be good. We're going to escape that. You know, we are not going to die. And the problem with that attitude and the fact that we have done away with any involvement with death is that we forget that part of what God intended is that we should be regularly reminded of our mortality. One of the customs that used to happen in the South that's gone for the most part now is that there used to be, in many church denominations, homecomings where there would be a big picnic that was often in the churchyard, and then people would go out and tend the family plot, and they would share stories about Aunt Susie and crazy grandma, you know, and all of those kinds of things. But it was a reminder that one day they were going to be in that family plot. And we have so separated our culture 
from the idea of death that we just don't want to accept it. And for Christians, death is the enemy that has been conquered by Jesus' resurrection. And I'm not saying you should want to die. Um, if, if, if you're feeling that way, come talk to me. Um, but we're not supposed to want to die, but what we're supposed to do is to understand that we are mortal and that this earth is not our home. Um, Hebrews is beautiful on this about all of the saints who are um, looking toward that city not made with hands because they are sojourners on this earth. So that is something that we need to recover. All right, I'll stop going on about that. So um, the fifth one, avoid contented worldliness. Ouch. Again, Jesus, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Jesus said that. (laughs) Presumably, he meant it. And yet, we live in a culture that wants to store up things, and we want to store up our 401k, and we want to store up this, and we want to store up that, because if we have enough stuff, then we're secure. But what Jesus wants is for us to be relying on God. And what Screwtape says here is that the worst thing about the war is that people start realizing they might die. And when you start realizing you might die, which particularly if you're in London during the Blitz and bombs are falling on houses and people are dying, it changes your perspective on what you might want to spend your day doing. It has a way of reordering your priorities. And what Jesus is saying all through the Sermon on the Mount and in this parable is that when we get those priorities wrong, it is as if we are climbing the ladder of success, but it's propped on the wrong building. That there is no joy in a bunch of stuff when you realize your life is going to end. So we could go on and on about that, but we're running out of time. Um, A few other things that we're going to see in some of these letters, there are some things that are habits, but there are also... some of the letters, things that I'm calling truths about spiritual warfare um, that we can glean because they're little insights into the way that Satan works. And the first one of these is that the devil seeks to fill you with anguish and bewilderment and despair. So if your heart is full of anguish and bitterness and despair and bewilderment, That is a good sign that Satan is sifting you, that he is coming after you. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't experience your emotions. We all experience emotions of fear or bewilderment or despair, whatever it might be. But the question is, what do we do with them? Do we choose to wallow in those or 
do we immediately realize that we need to take Scripture seriously and set our mind on things above where Christ is, that we are to think on what is true and lovely and noble and worthy of praise, all of those kinds of things. Because when we dwell in all of these negative emotions and we don't turn toward God, what we do is we open the door for Satan to begin to mess with us. And the second thing, and this is a truth that we're going to see over and over again in the screw tape letters, Satan is constantly seeking to undermine your faith and prevent you from cultivating habits of virtue. So he says this in the letter that we just read, do not allow any temporary excitement to distract you from the real business. This is the real business of hell, the real business of undermining faith and preventing the formation of virtues. Undermining faith and preventing the formation of virtues. It is not an accident that when you're trying to come on Wednesday night that things go wrong. It is not an accident that when you're trying to get your family to church that things go wrong. Um, there, there are a lot of things that we don't notice where Satan is at work to undermine our faith and to prevent us from cultivating habits of virtue. This is a truth about spiritual warfare. And that is why putting on the whole armor of God and standing is so unbelievably important because when you do that, it just frustrates the schemes of the devil. And that is what, as followers of Jesus, we want to be able to do. So let me close again with this great quotation from letter A. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that is in this letter. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and that you would open our minds, and that that journey from our minds to our hearts would be one where your Holy Spirit helps to quicken us. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we walk through this time of the schemes of the devil to instead be aware, to be vigilant, and that we would be putting on the whole armor of God and cultivating habits that come from your word that would enable us to annoy the devil. Lord, we pray that you would bless us with your presence as we go this night. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wow.